You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome into the Autzen Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prem. Eric Scopel is with me on the show as always. And is there any concern that Mario Cristobal could be leaving the Oregon football program for a richer contract somewhere else outside of the Pac-12 conference? We're going to discuss that and more here on this Ots and Audible's podcast. But before we do, I want to remind you guys that you can subscribe to DuckTerritory.com uh, and save a huge chunk of money right now. We've got a promotion, 50% off an annual VIP membership. Uh, that's $53.70. That's a huge value. Uh, you will get an entire year at 50% off. And football season starts in two weeks. You get all of football. You get all of the recruiting process. You get all of basketball. You get all of spring football next year. Uh, you get a, a huge chunk of next season as well to, that goes with this membership. So jump on that today if you haven't subscribed to DuckTerritory.com. Inside scoop on the Oregon Ducks. Expert analysis and opinion. Read all the content across the 24-7 Sports Network. And we're also still honoring the $1 for your first month, $9.95 there after that option if you don't want to go an annual route. But honestly, uh, it, it's it's you're going to save a huge chunk of money if you go with the annual membership. Okay, Eric, uh, this has been a hot topic, I think, the last couple of weeks within the Oregon fan base for sure. Um, it's been brought up here and there a little bit. There's been a couple stories written about Mario Cristobal's contract from various media outlets. Uh, there was that you know, hashtag that was used by recruits and some fans and uh, on social media about extending Cristobal. And um, we do know that both sides were very close to signing an extension for Mario Cristobal in February and in early part of March. And then COVID-19 hit and everything kind of got put on pause. And then the university of Oregon announced a hiring freeze unless uh, it was deemed an emergency hire that needs to be made to continue operations. And uh, we could argue that maybe this is an emergency you know, decision, uh, but nonetheless, uh, nothing has been announced um, outside of reports that were, you know, rep- you know, came out in February and early March saying that things were, we're trending in that direction of a, of a contract extension being done. We were told the same. Uh, we could we could confirm those reports at the time, but nothing has, has come of it since. And we're, we're now, what, seven, eight months since those reports came out. And is, is there a time now, Eric, where we should be concerned about uh, the possibility of another school coming in and swooping in and, and hiring Mario Cristobal? Because look, we're we're about six weeks away from coaching season beginning again. Yeah. And you look at it here in 2019, Mario Cristobal ranked eighth in the pack 12 amongst coaches in terms of a salary. Um, I don't have the 2020 figures in front of me right now. Um, actually, I, I just pulled it up and yeah, that's about the same. And in fact, the two recent hires this off season, um, Carl Durrell is making more at Colorado. Uh, Jimmy Lake is making more at Washington. Nick Rolovich is making more at Washington State. Um, the only coach in the Pac-12, well, we don't have figures from Stanford or USC because those are private institutions and they don't release those. But the only coach in the Pac-12 right now 
that Mario Cristobal is making more than on an annual basis is Jonathan Smith. Um, at Oregon State. At Oregon State. And that, I mean, there is some, there's something wrong with that picture. Uh, he is certainly deserving of being arguably the highest paid coach in the conference. Certainly in that discussion, I think you could, I mean, maybe he needs to reach a couple more benchmarks to get there, but you don't want to lose the momentum. I mean, we, how, how, how many times have we talked about how great we think Mario Cristobal is on this podcast um, about the trajectory that the program is going? I mean, they won a Pac-12 championship, the Rose Bowl. This recruiting class is the highest rated ever. The, the two previous before that were also in that discussion. So um, there is ample reason to keep Mario Cristobal happy and try to keep him here as long as possible, especially with his ties to the Southeast where they will throw some big money at him. Um, and you, I think it's warranted to have a little bit of concern regarding that. I, I think Mario wants to be here. Uh, he's communicated that. I still remember his, his opening press conference when he was promoted a couple of years ago and just how he wanted to make the point that he was going to be here for, for the long haul. And I, I, I genuinely think that's true. I think he's an upfront person. I don't think he's, I don't think we're dealing with another Willie Taggart situation here where he's saying one thing, but behind closed doors is saying, ah, I'm, I'm going to take off the, the moment X job shows up or whatever. And that might not be totally fair to Willie Taggart because I know Florida State was quote unquote the dream job for him. But I think there is reason to be a little concerned based upon just the, the, the how much he's being paid compared to the rest of the coaches in this conference. And um, he's a really, really good football coach. And I think if you're Oregon, you have to find a way to keep him happy. But you're right. The, what complicates it is Oregon just had to cut coaching salaries. They just furloughed employees. They laid off some employees. Um, they're not going to have fans in the stands that generates have, large amounts of money as well. I was going to say they're projecting a 50 to $80 million deficit, I think, in the athletic department this year. Um, all of these things make it really hard to really make the argument to give a coach a couple more million dollars annually. And, you know, maybe what you do if you're Oregon is you say, hey, we're going to keep you at this number right now because we really can't argue. It's going to look weird for us to, to make a $1.5 million increase but pay in 2021 when hopefully things sort out a little bit more we'll give you an even bigger bump we'll make you know we'll double we'll, we'll double that number we'll give you like a two and a half million dollar and i'm just spitballing here but maybe there's a way that you can make this a back end of the contract is even more or is significantly better for him from a salary perspective because i'm with you matt like you got to find a way to keep this guy around and i do think the optics of giving him a huge pay raise right now probably aren't great, but the alternative is you don't want to lose him because that actually probably hurts the program significantly. I shouldn't say probably. I think that hurts the program significantly more financially too going forward because you're, you're talking about getting rid of, rid of a coach who we think is going to be a winning coach here for, for a while. And if you let him walk out the door after this season um, and try to – I don't think you can find – I think it's going to be hard to find a replacement as good as Mario Cristobal is what I'll say. And so, yeah, you got to pay this guy. It's just the doing that becomes kind of challenging given the circumstances. Now, USA Today, they've recently released their, their list of salaries. And Stanford head coach, like you said, Stanford and USC's uh, coaches, they, their contracts are a little murkier because they're private. They don't have to report it. Mm -hmm. um, but Stanford does – the USA Today's database does have Stanford head coach David Shaw as the highest coach in 2020. Um, he, they have a figure. They don't know his, his base pay. They don't know, uh, you know, what the school's upfront money and, and what they're paying. But the total amount paid to David Shaw over various 
revenues within the, within the contract. The USA Today does have somehow obtained that number, um, and he's 18 in the country, and he's paid 4.812 million dollars. Um, Utah head coach Kyle Whittingham is the second highest paid coach in the Pac-12. He is scheduled to be paid 4.634 million dollars. Uh, he did take a slight pay cut from his five million dollar salary that he was owed going into this season. Uh, Clay Helton at USC is the third highest coach. He's 21st in the country, makes just over five, uh, 4.5 million, and then Chip Kelly is fourth uh, in the Pac-12, 23rd nationally at 4.3 million. Um, I've seen lots of fans. I've, I've seen some media people mm-hmm. go out and suggest that, you know, Crystal Ball needs to, be, you know, to get $6 million. Uh, it needs to get $7 million, $8 million. And, look, I, I, I think he's going to be in that stratosphere where he's, he should be paid some of, you know, as one of the, the best coaches in college football and then have one of the best, you know, most expensive salaries in college football. Yeah, um, but at the same time, I look at Mario Cristobal and I go back to what we've seen previously that's happened with Oregon. Um, and most importantly, Mark Helfrich. They gave Helfrich a big extension after the 2014 season in which the Ducks went to the college football playoff. Marcus Mariota won the Heisman and they made the college football championship game. Uh, and if it wasn't for some injuries over the course of a year, maybe they come out victorious of that. But a lot of that success was built off of players that Helfrich inherited from the Chip Kelly era. And over the next two seasons, we saw how quickly the program deteriorated. Now, I don't think that's going to happen under Mario Cristobal. But at the same time, Cristobal's success and the players that he has has primarily used to reach the Pac-12 championship reach the Rose Bowl championship and position themselves as a potential top 10 team this year before COVID, a lot of the players that helped elevate Oregon to where they are now weren't players that he personally recruited to Oregon. Now there are some. Penny Sue obviously is a guy that, that he brought in. Uh, Kayvon Thibodeau is certainly a guy that he brought in. Uh, Micah Pittman is certainly a guy that, that he brought in. But you look across the board – and the guys that were on last year's team, Herbert, Jake Hansen, Calvin Throckmorton, uh, Shane Lemieux, Troy Dye, you go down the list, and these weren't guys that were big name that were superstar big names for the program that weren't his players. And I think this was the year in which we really got a feel for who Mario Cristobal was, is as the as the head coach, and that would set the market for what his contract would play out as. If they came out in 2020 and they win the conference championship again and they and they get to the Rose Bowl or they get to the college football playoff, then yeah, pay him $8 million, pay him $7 million, pay him $9 million uh, because he has now backed it up with other players' players, uh, other coaches' players, and his own. He's had high success. He's backed it up after – seeing a huge run of, of elite players run through the program and then since move on and go on to the NFL and reload. Uh, but if he, if there's a big step back, like what happens if you give out a contract of $7 million 
and the 2020 in a normal year, Oregon goes eight and four. And in 2021, Oregon goes nine and three. Is, is that what you expect out of a $7 million coach? Um, and, and, and so COVID has really, I think, made things difficult because we all know Crystal Ball's underpaid. He's grossly underpaid. Absolutely. Um, but how high can they go? How high should they go? And in which the, and also balancing the optics that of that comes of there are people within that athletic department that lost jobs potentially, or, uh, were we know for sure we're furloughed and weren't being paid for large spurts of, of the summer because the school needed to, to save as much as every penny they could save. And then you go out and pay, you know, $2 million more a year to a, to a football coach uh, when you could maybe have 10 people or 30 people or 40 people on staff to help things. But on the flip side, like you brought up, if Cristobal is as good as we think he is, he's going to make that money back twofold because donations will come in. Season tickets will go up. Success will go up. There'll be in more big bowl games, which will generate more revenue for the program as well, which will pay for other, other things. It's kind of a, it's a double-edged sword here. It feels like. Yeah, I guess my my response is maybe this is a little bit of revisionist history, but this feels a little different than when Mark Helfrich was here. Um, the recruiting stands out as you know what what they've done from a recruiting perspective stands out. I think I understand your argument from like a in-game coaching perspective of like he hasn't done it with you know a roster completely comprised right. of his players. Like that's totally fair. But I also think I think the other thing that that to me really stands out is the staff he's built and how Mark Helfrich basically kept that entire staff intact, right? Um, and he just kind of rolled with it and he didn't try to build his own staff. And Mark Mario Cristobal has done that. And I think he's built the best assistant coaching staff in the conference and I one agreed. of the best assistant coaching conferences, you know, in, or, or staffs in the country. So I, I think there, there, you know, just a couple of you know counterpoints there of why, why I feel like this is a little different than that. And I do think you bring up a really good point though, in terms of if you're Rob Mullins, ultimately the decision maker and you're going to be the person cutting these checks, you do have to learn from what transpired earlier in the 2010s, you know, in 2000, what was it? 2013 when Mark Helfrich inherited the job and they make the national championship game in 14. And then by 2016, he's out the door. You don't want to repeat that. Um, and again, maybe this is slightly revisionist history and, 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 but I, I remember distinctly feeling like, boy, they just promoted Don Pelham to be the defensive coordinator. I don't want to take shots at Don Pelham. Um, my family has personal relationships with Don Pelham. He went to my parents' church and was on like the church board with my parents. So like, I, I don't want to like throw him under the bus, but there was certainly a sense of like, that doesn't feel quite like a, the hire you should be making if you want to pr promote this program going forward. And on the flip side, we've seen Mario Cristobal bring in two fantastic coordinators. We saw him with a couple of, you know, we saw him, move on from Marcus Royal. I know Marcus Royal took a job, but he certainly feel like he's promoted or brought in somebody who's better than what Marcus Royal was. So, I mean, I oh, think go back to the defensive coordinator deal exactly. where everyone just assumed Keith Hayward get, would get promoted when Levitt left and he went yeah. out instead and, and found someone that he felt was even better in Andy Avalos. When, if you just look at the assistant coaching staff right now, the coaches that he arrived here with, with under Willie Taggart, Keith Hayward and Joe Salavea, I believe, are the only coaches still on staff. Um, and he has and those guys are awesome coaches, clearly. Um, he's had to rebuild this whole thing from every other position coach. 
you know, I mean, he brought in a bunch of people he was familiar with. He brought in people that he didn't have previous ties with. And they've all, I mean, almost across the board, it's hard to find a lot of coaches he's brought on that haven't been great. So those are just my counterpoints of like, I think this is different. I think it's, I think he's worth making the commitment to. I don't know what the number is. Um, I don't know if he deserves seven, $8 million. I mean, those numbers seem really high to me, but I'm also somebody who like anything over like $2 million seems like just a massive number to me, but I know that, you know, you have to be, there's a competitive, there's a level of competitive balance here in terms of where you're at and stuff. And I, I do think like, to me, it seems like I would love to see Oregon do something like a, make it a little bit of a back heavy contract where, Again, optically, it doesn't look great to give your coach a you know double or triple his salary right now, given everything that's going on. But maybe you just make that up for him in 2021 and 22 and 23 and 24, and you just make it by the time he gets to 23, he is set to make a massive, massive deal. Or maybe it's just an incentive-based deal on some of that stuff. Um, and that, that keeps him in check in terms of his base salary certainly needs to be more than what it is right now. And maybe you double that or, I don't know, make it, make it four and a half million up, you know, and that's about almost $2 million more. Um, but there's a bunch of incentives in there for winning conference championships and winning Rose Bulls and competing for national championships, et cetera, et cetera, that are in there to kind of make up the benefit of, of that way. You're not fully committing yourself like you did with Mark Helfrich to a deal that ends up being kind of faulty a couple of years down the line. I, I, I'm, I have never, I can say this. I have never, uh, negotiated a coaching contract before I've negotiated my own contract <laughs> for myself. Uh, and I was never looking at these kind of figures. <laughs> so, but I, I, I do think there is something to be said of like, I think you can get, you have to get a little creative here because again, I think optically it looks, and you mentioned you ran through some of it and I did too, of just like they've had to make a bunch of sacrifices this year. A lot of people have in the athletic department. It, it wouldn't look fantastic to, suddenly just throw a heap of money at Mario immediately when everybody else has had to deal with what they've gone through. Um, but I'm also not going to be somebody that's super judgmental if they go that route, if that means keeping him around here. Cause I, I truly do think the trajectory of this program is, and I know Oregon has played for national championships in the, you know, the last decade. So maybe that's not totally fair, but if you can keep Mario Cristobal around for six to eight more years, I truly believe they're going to win a national championship, maybe compete for multiple and really become and solidify themselves as the power out West. So you got to do everything in your power. And that goes into what I was going to segue next to is I honestly think like there's a lot of concern among fan bases. Um, Some people put out there that uh, maybe Auburn's going to fire Gus Malzahn and they're going to go and hire Mario Cristobal or uh, maybe if Miami opens up that, they're going to go hire Mario Cristobal because that's where Cristobal played his football at, at the University of Miami, and he's from South Florida. And Miami already tried to get Cristobal going into the 20, uh, 2019 offseason. Uh, when Oregon won the Red Box Bowl in 2018, uh, you know, it was like the day before Cristobal told Miami he's not interested. Um, so, like, there's a lot of this, like, another school in the SEC is – is going to come and, and pluck him away and he's going to go back, you know, closer to home and, 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 and be there. And honestly, like that doesn't like crystal ball is v- very, very tactically. He's so far ahead of everybody. Um, it feels like uh, he's very smart, forward thinking guy. And I don't necessarily think it's in his best interest to go to the sec. I mean, maybe unless, unless it's purely money driven, unless he wants to accumulate, uh, as much money as 
he possibly can and doesn't care about the difficulty that comes with uh, the, the job that he lands at to get to the college football playoff and the path that, you know, the journey he would have to take, because you could argue the easiest path to the college football playoff is being a head coach in the Pac-12 conference and primarily at Oregon or USC, because one, no one else in the conference really is operating at a level like you are. And if you go 12 and 0, you're in the college football playoff. I don't care how poorly viewed the, the league is from a national perspective. If you go 12 and 0 and you're in the Pac 12, you make the college football playoff. Doesn't matter. It, 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 if you win your conference and you win your championship game, you're in. That's all it's going to take. Zero losses, you're in the playoff. And you have a much better chance, in my eyes, of going 13 and 0 in the Pac 12. Then you do, let's just say Auburn does open up this offseason and Cristobal does get offered that job. And in a hypothetical scenario, he does go to, to Auburn. Well, now he has to play, he has to coach a program where he's not even the top school in his own state. Yep. Because there's Alabama mm -hmm. and you play Alabama every year in your division. You play LSU every year in your division. Uh, and so maybe at best, Auburn is second or third best, second or third best school in, in the SEC West division. And your fourth worst school is Texas A&M. One in which every year it feels like, whether we say they're overrated or not, it feels like every year or every other year, A&M is at some point in the year, top 10, like, yeah. or, or top 15. And then you've got Arkansas, who this year is showing improvement. Uh, I believe you've also got Missouri, who's in the SEC West. Um, that, that could be wrong. But nonetheless, my point is, is proven. And you still haven't even had to face a team out of the SEC East like a Florida uh, or a Georgia or a Tennessee that could potentially come out of the SEC East division and you have to play in the championship game. And okay, so let's just not go. To, let's not go to uh, the SEC. Let's let's go to the ACC. Well, we still have Clemson there. Do you want to play Clemson every year? And that's the path to get to the college football playoff. And I understand, like, hey, look, just like in sports, uh, coaches are are like athletes. They're competitive. They're confident in their own abilities. They know that they can do what the other person couldn't do. But is it really realistic to go in and think you're going to rebuild a program and you're going to become the top dog when Clemson's operating like they are right now? Probably not. Like you might get to their level, but nonetheless, now all of a sudden you have two teams and you're, you know, you're, yourself and, and Clemson where you, both of both schools are, are top five, top eight schools in the country. And you may be in their own division, you know, which, which could make things difficult in the PAC 12. There isn't a school outside of Oregon right now. Maybe USC gets back to that level, but there isn't a school in, in the conference outside of Oregon where you say they are by and far the best program in the, in, in the conference. And if they go undefeated, they make the college football playoff. So, so it doesn't even, for me, it doesn't even make sense for crystal ball to leave Oregon unless it's purely money driven. And I, let me just add on that. I'm in total agreement, Matt, really good points there in terms of the difficulties that he would have in another conference. And, and honestly, he has a pretty good out West and, my, my other point, just to tag on to that, would be think about it from a recruiting perspective. 
you're recruiting out in the SEC, you're recruiting against all the big boys, you know, and I'm not saying he couldn't have success there because I think he's someone who can legitimately go anywhere and recruit at a high level. He came out West here and immediately became the, the top dogs recruiting right on the West Coast. If you can dominate the West Coast recruiting like he has and basically be like, we're going to take the top players from Arizona and Utah and our state. Yeah. Haven't done it in Washington quite yet, but I think that we'll start to see that happening. We've seen it already in Southern California. We've seen it in Northern California. But if he, he's done that here, and again, I'm not saying he can't do that if he goes to the SEC, but the competition's a little different out there. you know. And the Pac-12 right now doesn't have a lot of staffs that recruit anywhere near as well as he does. USC is really the only one that competes with Oregon. I know Arizona State and Washington and Cal are probably the next three that are kind of in that discussion. But Oregon wins those battles nine times out of ten, it seems like, right now. That's been the, the recent track record. You go and you look around the state's in the Pac-12 footprint, Oregon is taking basically the top players from all those states. And if they don't go to Oregon, they leave the Pac-12 footprint. It's either, from a recruiting perspective, he's in a really, really good spot too. And that's how you build these programs. That's the lifeblood of it. And if you can stay out West, and, and, and you know, I know people in the Southeast will, would argue this, but the Pac-12 footprint has some incredible talent. You know, Southern California remains one of the premier hotbeds. I think Arizona is an, an expanding hotbed. Um, the Seattle area typically has a lot of really good football players. We're seeing really good players come out of Utah and Hawaii. You know, he, he can tap into this out here. And I don't think he'd be, you know, and if, you're, and if you move again, if you go out to, yeah, like you say, the Auburn job, you're recruiting in the state of Alabama where there is undoubtedly a ton of talent, but you're having to face all the big dogs. And if you try to go out to the states in the surrounding areas, you go to Georgia, you go to Florida, to Texas, you have to deal with the big dogs in those states. And you know, it's not quite as easy to do what he's doing there. And again, I don't want to say he can't recruit at a high level there, but he certainly couldn't recruit at a level where he is. He, I'll put it this way. He came into the Pac-12 and almost immediately they're signing the best recruiting class in the Pac-12. Yeah, he flipped the year script. In, year out. He goes to the SEC. I would bet a lot of money that he's not going to pull the best recruiting class in the SEC immediately. Right? I mean, that seems like a, a lot to ask. And so that's why the – and that's part of the reason why staying in the Pac-12 makes sense is if you can continue to have the best talent year in and year out – and we're getting to a place here where it's kind of crazy to think about it because USC for so long always had the best talent, even if they didn't perform on the field that way. We're getting to a point here where Oregon is like, from a talent perspective on the composite, like they're going to be the best talented team in the Pac-12 probably by next year just from like a four or five-star perspective. You go to the SEC, you're fourth, fifth, sixth fiddle probably if you're at Auburn. Um, if I'm Mario Cristobal, I'm saying I'm going to build this at Oregon and I'm going to build it and build it and build it. The only way I'm leaving this footprint is to go take – Alabama's job or Clemson's job or Georgia, one of these elite, elite pinnacle jobs that are competing for championships every year. And those jobs aren't going to open right now because those programs are competing at a really high level. So again, I don't want to say I'm doubting his ability to do any of this stuff, but I also think he's got, like you said, Matt, he's got it pretty good out West. I think right now. I don't, it, it, it's, it's a weird dynamic because I think Oregon knows that too. Like, yeah. do you really want to leave and, and not go, you know, do you want to want to leave this area and go have to compete against all those extra hurdles to cover, or you can stay out here? And I'm sure that factors into the contract as well. And and so, what does Oregon do? What should Oregon do? Should Oregon fans be freaking out that a contract isn't done? Um, this isn't a, a simple answer. It's not as easy as hey, we just need to get this done. Let's you know, let's sit down over the weekend. Let's hammer this out. Let's announce this and get it done. Boom, here we go. Um, we all know that COVID has made things a little bit, has, has really complicated this situation. 
That being said, I'll be shocked if something doesn't come down the pipe. And that could be in a couple of weeks. That could be at the end of the season. That could be before the 2021 football season. Yeah. But I don't think I don't think Duck fan needs to freak out about a contract getting done. Um, it will get done. Crystal Ball, I think, will be the head coach at Oregon for a very long time. And he will be compensated in a way in which uh, will make him one of the higher, you know, higher paid coaches in the country. I don't think, um, and look, this is what, this is what I would do. And we'll, we'll, we'll take a break after this and move on to the NFL after, you know, after this, but this is, if I was Rob Mullins, this is what I would do. Hey, you know what? We understand that you're under, you're underpaid. And in a normal scenario, we would have gotten this done a long time ago. And unfortunately, it means out of your control and that you shouldn't be punished for the COVID-19 has happened. It's flipped us upside down from a, from a money standpoint. We can't pay you what we think you're worth in, in five or six, you know, at, you know, five or six million dollars. How about we bump you up to five million or four and a half million for the 2020 football season? And if you have the year that we think you, you're going to have and that we want you to have, in year two, we're going to redo the deal again. And you go out, you have a huge year, you get us another conference championship game, you get us to the college football playoff, what, whatever. And, you know, one of those scenarios could play out. Or, one, you know, if you made the playoff, both would play out. But you have a really good year in 2020. We'll redo the deal after the year is over, after we stabilize the athletic department's financials and we get a better idea of what the money stream is going to look like. And in 2021, we'll redo the deal. We'll bump you up again even more. I mean, who? why can't you redo the deal after one year? Honestly, like, I, I think that's probably what's going to happen is they'll probably give him some kind of a raise. And then after he goes out and has, the, you know, continues to elevate the standard at Oregon, the deal will get, just get done a second time within two or three years. All right, let's take a quick break. You're listening to the Autzen Audible's podcast. Introducing the Two-Way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the Two-Way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the Two-Way for yourself at newbalance.com. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to the Odds and Audible's podcast. I'm Matt Prem, Eric Scopel with me as always. And we teased it going out of the break and, and coming back into the show now. Um, Justin Herbert, or we're going to talk NFL, and I think it's Justin Herbert discussion, um, Eric, is that 
for another week, Herbert has made history. Uh, he became just the second quarterback to throw for over 250 yards in his first uh, five starts, I believe, and the other being uh, Patrick Mahomes, who did it 10 straight times to start his career for the Kansas City Chiefs in his, in his starts. Uh, Herbert had a huge game against the Jacksonville Jaguars. And I think, yes, it is the Jacksonville Jaguars. You know, they, they have now lost six straight games. Um, but nonetheless, Herbert got his first win. It doesn't really matter who it came against. It shouldn't really matter who it came against. And he did it in a game in which it felt like the, the rest of the entire offense was not clicking on all cylinders at the time. And Herbert yeah. elevated everything. Uh, he raised the standard for the team. They win 39-29. Herbert finishes 27 of 43 for 347 yards, three touchdowns, second straight game without an interception, QBR rating of 81.5, uh, a, a rating game of 111.3, which is just insanely high. He also led the team in rushes, uh, rushing yards with 66. He was over 70. Uh, on six carries before he took some kneels to end the game. He had a rushing touchdown, which ended up being the game winner. Mm-hmm. And he's now got his first win. And I think, Eric, he's now thrust himself squarely in the mix for rookie of the year. No doubt. I, I, he's probably the favorite in my mind. I mean, I know there's going to be a lot of Joe Burrow buzz, but you put their numbers next to each other, there's no doubt who's been the better quarterback. And I know you can argue – if you want about the talent receiver or whatever around the two, uh, Cincinnati's got some really good receivers too. We should know. I mean, AJ green, Tyler Boyd, uh, T Higgins is a rookie. They really like Herbert. It doesn't have his top running back. Um, a couple of receivers have been in and out of the lineup and this isn't a fluke. Now this is five starts. And I just pulled up uh, and the rank, the, the, some of the stats here from a rankings perspective amongst other quarterbacks, he is now seventh in the NFL through five games. He's only played five. Some of these guys have played six or seven, but in, in a quarterback rating, um, the players ahead of him, Deshaun Watson, Patrick Mahomes, Ryan Tannehill, Derek Carr, Aaron Rodgers, Russell Wilson, players behind him, Drew Brees, Josh Allen, Tom Brady, Jared Goff, Dak Prescott, Ben Roethlisberger, Lamar Jackson. And you have to go way down the list to get to Joe Burrows, who I think ranks 26th among starting quarterbacks in that category. Um, so yeah, he is squarely in the mix for this. There's not, a running back, I think that really stands out. Uh, I know there's a couple receivers who've been good, but he's, I would say he's probably the leader right now. I mean, I, I know that they haven't had as much on-field success as you maybe would like. He's only won one of his five starts, but before he lost, we're all very winnable games and not lost because of him. I mean, you watched, they, they should have beat the New Orleans Saints in regulation. Their kicker missed a field goal. He set them up for that. Um, they lost in overtime against the Kansas City Chiefs in his first start. They lost a game to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and Tom Brady. That was they looked like they were going to win it most of the way, and, and Brady played really well down the stretch. Like, it's not like he hasn't had a stinker game yet. And I kind of keep waiting for him to do it. You know what I mean? Of like, yeah, he's going to have a week where he just throws three picks and stinks. And I hope I didn't jinx him by saying that. And the next game he's going to not play very well. But he's had five starts that have all been very, very high quality starts. And again, against really good quarterback play, um, with the exception of probably Gardner Minshew the last game and Teddy Bridgewater has been pretty solid. He's actually right below, uh, below Lamar Jackson on that list in terms of quarterback rating. He's 
about 15th nationally. So that's like an average quarterback, and that's who he lost to as well. But he's, he's shown out, and I think we now get to the point here where we can say, this isn't a fluke. This is who, he's, who he is. This is who he's going to be. And legitimately, this is who we all thought like Marcus Mariota was going to be in the NFL, right? And Joey Harrington. Others, or Joey Harrington or Achilles Smith or – I wouldn't say Kellen Clemens because he wasn't a top 10 draft pick, but he was another quarterback that was taken, I think, in the second round. But Oregon's had a slew of these quarterbacks go early over the last couple decades here, and they haven't worked out. And it really feels like this is the first one where it's like, boy, he might be really special, um, and he might be a superstar, and he might be a player that we're looking at who's a 10 to 15-year starter in the NFL where he's competing for MVP honors at some point and all pro and pro bowls and leading the Chargers deep into playoffs, et cetera, et cetera. Like, he looks like a franchise quarterback. And the fact that he looks so good with, again, a, a team where – I mean, he didn't have a lot of preparation to jump into this. I know he has now, but like he's continued just to get better every single week. They've had all sorts of injury issues with the Chargers. They've had all sorts of issues that weren't entirely his fault for why they've lost these games. And now, like, Matt, are you going to be surprised if, if he wins, if he's the first Oregon – football player to, to win an NFL MVP? Like, cause I probably wouldn't be if that happens here in the next, I'm not saying it happens now or even in the next couple of years, but I'm not going to be stunned if we're looking up in the middle of this decade and like Justin Herbert's one of the best, if not the best quarterbacks in the NFL. Um, that's too early for me to, to get on board with saying, yeah, I think he's going to do that just because remember he's in the same division as Patrick Mahomes. Fair point. Um, and I think I think Mahomes is is better set up than than Herbert is right now, uh, obviously. Um, but I I do I wouldn't be shocked if hey in two years, three years, five years, you tell me that Herbert's a top five quarterback, top ten quarterback in the NFL. He, I mean, not to answer your question with a question, but I think you could make a case, Eric, that he's a top twelve quarterback in the league right now. Like, yeah, he he's. First player since at least 1970 to throw for 1,500 yards and have a passer rating above 100 through his first five career games. I mean, that's just an, an, an insane stat for Justin Herbert. Uh, the only other quarterback as a rookie to throw for three or more touchdowns in three consecutive games, Deshaun Watson. Um, so look at the two streaks he's got right now, and one of which is uh, – Five consecutive games with 250 or more yards. Uh, the only other quarterback to do that in NFL history is Patrick Mahomes. And then you compare what we just said about Deshaun Watson, and Mahomes and Watson both are considered you know, top 10 quarterbacks in the NFL right now. And so I, I think Herbert's on that track where you're right. like He's going to be the guy for 10 or 15 years. It'll all depend upon his health. Of right. how you know how long will he be there uh, will depend on his health, but it, it feels like from a perspective of as long as Herbert's healthy, he's the Chargers' quarterback until he's not, and uh, his, his game takes a significant step back because of age. Uh, it feels like he's already one of the league's better quarterbacks, and he's only going to get better. And what's crazy about it is he's doing this without an offensive line that's fully intact. Uh, you know, I, I believe one of the injured running uh, offensive linemen got back this week, but they were out three pro bowl offensive linemen. One, which was on the team last year, uh, their center. And then they went out and signed two free agent pro bowl guys 
to come in and help shore up the offensive line. And all three of those guys are hurt right now. They are also out with uh, Austin Eckler, their, their star running back. And they have no, they have virtually no running game. And so Herbert's doing this in which he's playing with one arm behind his back because the offense is entirely different from a personnel standpoint than, than what he was expected to have going into the year. And yet he's still playing at a high level. And that's typically what you see from a guy that's an MVP can- candidate or, you know, a pro bowl candidate quarterback or one of the better guys in the, in the NFL is it doesn't matter who's out. They continue to elevate the play of those around them so that the team is still really good. And we're, I'm getting those vibes from Herbert and you mentioned a good point of their record should be better because they've had, I think 16 point leads uh, or, or double digit leads against all the teams that they lost to. And you could conceivably go out and say that they probably should have won one or two of those games. I mean, you, you, you hammered home the saints one, the kicker just missed a, a, a field goal to win the game that he should have made. And so they're going to get better and better. And as they get healthier, they're going to become even, even more talented, which sets up a deal in which I look at this team and think they're, they're built for success long-term and short-term with Herbert. And I was just thinking about this and how cool this <clears throat> might be is I, I know the chargers are not the big ticket item in Los Angeles, but if Justin Herbert ends up LA is a very, it's a warm weather, fair weather fan base, right? If he ends up being really, really good, and this Chargers team becomes really, really good, he is going to skyrocket, become a massive figure in that in that area, and probably become one of the most celebrated athletes in that area if he can lead them to this sort of success that I was suggesting he might. And, and Matt's Matt's right in terms. Of, I'm getting probably getting ahead of myself a little bit here by saying MVP, et cetera. But these are, I mean, he's having these early like like we've run through. He's having these kind of early signs of being on that sort of trajectory. And you know, it's only five starts. And he has to do it for a full season and multiple seasons before he can really indoctrinate him as the next superstar NFL quarterback. But if he does get to that place, just think about how significant that's going to be in a city like Los Angeles, where he suddenly becomes. I mean, Justin better be ready to be. I mean, LA is a. <laughs> he's going to be a dude down there in terms of the the way he's celebrated and recognized in a city like LA, which again, it's very fair weather. The Chargers are, have just moved from San Diego. I know they don't have a massive fan base, but they'll they'll get on board behind him if he keeps doing these kind of things and if he has some success in terms of winning football games at a high level. It's pretty crazy to think about kind of what the career trajectory could look for him. That's a you know, honestly, it's kind of the perfect spot. You don't want to be in New York right now because those fan bases are crazy and those those organizations are a mess. You're the the Chargers are never going to be the big ticket item, at least right right now. He's kind of slid into a spot here where I really think you, you could see him really skyrocket from a notoriety perspective in that area by being the 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 big face of an NFL franchise that could be really successful. You know, I know Jared Goff led the Rams to a Super Bowl a couple of years ago. Uh, or Super Bowl appearance, at least. He, because of that, has received, I think, a lot of credit. I think Justin Herbert can be that same kind of guy. So you get really excited, I think, just thinking about what the ceiling is for him and what two to three to four to five years could look like down the road and kind of what his significance could be, um, you know, in the league and then also just in that region. I think what's cool about this whole start for Herbert over five games is, yes, Oregon has had other guys go on to the league and have – you know, really good years, all pro caliber type years. I mean, I, most notably Buckner and Armstead. Um, you know, they've had some guys show up and play at a really high level and, and sign really big contracts. But 
unless I mean Aaron Darnold, um, trying to think of a couple other defensive end type guys, JJ Watt. Um, yeah, there's a couple others out there that are just immensely talented, but they're not, I mean, and they're insanely good players, but they're not like the face of the NFL. Miles Garrett right now. Yeah. And so like right now I look at this and think like, yes, Oregon has had some guys who are in the league right now have really good starts to their careers, but they don't play a position that, that is as exciting as what we're seeing with Herbert. And this feels like really Oregon's first true star that, Every NFL fan, average NFL fan, is going to know his name when they see his face. They're going to, you know, they're going to talk about what he did does because look, there's a lot of average fans out there that, that don't know who DeForest Buckner is or don't know who Eric Armstead is. And if you show a picture of them, uh, you know, they they couldn't name who he is. But a lot of people can name the star quarterback just by looking at their at their their picture or their profile pic or whatever. They can say that about the star receiver. Um, they, they know the stats and all of that. Maybe that goes with being a skill guy. But Herbert has that feel where this is like the first true guy who's making everyone in the country with within the team. I mean, Richard Sherman was tweeting about J- Justin Herbert during the, you know, the game last night about – he said, like I'm paraphrasing, but every time I see a highlight of this young quarterback for the Chargers, it's an absolute dime for a touchdown pass. Kid is legit. Like Kendrick Perkins from from a former <laughs> NBA player was yeah. tweeting about him during the game. Uh, you know, that's when you know you've got this superstar. Is when other players within your sport and and other either big name personalities or other athletes from other sports are talking about you too. And we're seeing that with Herbert when we haven't seen that with anyone else before. I think that's what even makes it more exciting is that he's being noticed by everybody. And this is just the last thing I'll say. It's really fun knowing you go into a Sunday and you're going to have an opportunity. And I know this last weekend was different because the game wasn't on the local channels. I think that'll change going forward. But just knowing you can sit down on a Sunday afternoon and watch a former Oregon player start and hear the positive, you know, the positivity around what he's doing. It's just not a thing that we've been able to really, you know, Matt just mentioned the, you know, the, the way he's been received by people on other teams and other sports. It's just something that's, I, I've never really experienced it covering Oregon, following Oregon, growing up, being somebody that was living in Eugene. Um, it's, it's a little different. It's really, really been fun to be, be able to kind of, like I said, sit down on a Sunday and go, hey, I'm just going to watch Justin Herbert play. Um, and I, I know I mentioned this in a previous podcast, he's making a lot more Chargers fan, fans in this area than there ever have been before. And I really think you're going to see start seeing a ton of number 10 Chargers jerseys around town here over the next couple months. I can tell you for, for a fact that you will be. I mean, I went up uh, to the Nike store over the weekend and they had a huge rack of them. Um, and, and it looked like there was a good amount already sold. You know, so you're already seeing Herbert jerseys show up. And um, just from a comparison standpoint, Eric, you brought this up, or maybe it was me who, who we discussed the you know, rookie of the year MVP type, type discussion. Um, Joe Burrow, I think the last – you know, the first three or four or five weeks of the season was viewed as the leader. Now Herbert's thrust himself into the mix and understand that Burrow has played in two more games than Herbert has because of a bye week for the Chargers, which was last weekend or two weekends ago now. And then also Herbert didn't play in week one. Burrow did. 
Um, bro, 2,144 total yards, 12 total touchdowns in seven games. Justin Herbert in five total games, 1,663 total yards, 14 total touchdowns. So Herbert already has more yard, more touchdowns uh, than Burrow is responsible for. He uh, has fewer interceptions than just than Joe Burrow does uh, as well. He's, he doesn't have any passing yards, obviously, but that's because he's played in fewer games. But honestly, Eric, it wouldn't surprise me the way Herbert's going right now. Look, I mean, just look at his game logs the last couple of weeks. Yeah. You know, 311 to start against Kansas City, 330 against Carolina, 290 against Tampa, 264 against New Orleans, and then 347 uh, against Jacksonville. Four out of his five games, he's gone over 300 yards. I think it's fair to say that he's going to get up into that rank of of being, you know, one of the higher passers in, in, in the NFL. And just from a, a stats perspective, he's 20th in the league in passing yards, at just over 1,500. He's tied for 13th with 12 touchdowns. He's tied for sixth for fewest interceptions with three. And he's 12th with a QBR rating of 74.5. I think he ranks like fourth in passing yards per game too because he's played fewer games. So, I mean, what he's doing statistically, really hard to poke any holes in it. Fun to watch nonetheless. Like Eric said, it feels like for the first time in a long time that every Sunday you have as a Duck fan, if you're a fan of – the team, the players, as they move on to the NFL, you have an opportunity to watch a guy that every every week it feels like is going to have a really big game, an exciting game, an entertaining game to watch. So uh, nonetheless, exciting to see this continue to play out for Justin Herbert. It's going to do it for us here on the Austin Audible's podcast. I want to remind you guys that you can subscribe today for 50% off our annual membership. Save a huge chunk of money compared to the month to month. The annual rate comes out to being $53.70 one-time payment. Your month-to-month rate after your first month is $9.95. So you're going to save over over $50 by doing that. Highly encourage you guys to jump on. Get your access now so you get the full season for 2020. You get recruiting. You get basketball. And you're almost going to get the entire bit of next year's season at that rate as well. So for Eric Scopel, I'm Matt Prame. Thank you for listening to the Odds and Audibles podcast. Talk to you later, folks. Hello, everyone. It's Michael Richards here. You might have seen me on CBS working on their Champions League coverage over the last couple of years. I wanted to tell you about an exciting new podcast that I've been working on. It's called The Rest is Football. It's me alongside Gary Lineker and Alan Shearer, two absolute legends of the game. The show combines topical debate from the world of soccer along with outrageous tales from our careers. And I mean, outrageous. Just search The Rest is Football wherever you get your podcasts. All the best from Big Meets.